From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz Headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Cap and Trade makes a comeback, the Resilient Cities movement gains traction, and mining $16 billion climate problem. We're testing our metal this week on 350. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. It's July 28th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and with me is Green Biz senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hello there, Lauren. Hello, Joel. How are you doing? I'm good. How's your midsummer treating you? Good, good. I took a, a fun little trip, walked across the U.S. border to Tijuana over the weekend. Lots of interesting stuff going on down there in, in terms of new businesses and stuff popping up. So I would highly recommend it. What was going on in Tijuana, if, my, if I may ask? I happened to be down in San Diego. So, you know, if you're 30 minutes away. Why not? You can just sort of park uh you know, 300 yards from where you walk across the border. I will say it was a much quicker process to get into Mexico than to come back to the U.S., but you know how it goes. And you can't just randomly do that. You need a passport and all that kind of thing. Yeah, you need to be official now. I'll have the paper trail and all of that, but I I think it was definitely worth the the red tape. So you got across to practice your newly acquired Spanish speaking skills? Exactly, and my you know, really strong taco eating skills as well. I would say <laughs> we're on full display. <laughs> How's all all going in your world this week? Uh, all good. I've been recovering from a little cold. You may still hear it in my voice, but basically, you know, business as usual. Um, one of the things I've been excited about is this week we launched our Emerging Leader Scholarship for Verge Seventeen. We started this actually at Green Biz Seventeen earlier this year. the The program is uh, about finding and giving scholarships to uh, bring promising young professionals in sustainability in both the private and nonprofit sector and academe and the public sector to our conferences to uh, and specific emphasis on on diversity not just uh, racial and gender diversity but even uh, we define it broadly uh, but also those who face socioeconomic or other barriers to achieving their goals so we have this program where we just launched for applications and we're going to be giving 10 complimentary passes plus airfare courtesy of United Airlines and lodging courtesy, well, of GreenBiz to 10 individuals that, that we're going to be selecting. We had this, as I said, at GreenBiz 17 this year. We're going to make it a standard part of all of our events. And so we're really excited about that. If anyone's out there out there is listening and is interested in applying or knows someone who wants to apply, we'll include the link for that in this week's program on the website. Yes, very cool. And in terms of the logistics, you have to be a current undergraduate or graduate student of any age at an accredited college or university or be an early career professional that's defined as age 21 to 29 and be available to commit to all three days of our Verge 17 event in Santa Clara, California, coming up September 19th through the 21st. So as Joel said, we'll throw a link to that in the notes for this week's show. And a couple, one other thing is that 
we'll be doing a two or three special events just for the emerging leaders to introduce them to some of the sustainability executives from big companies and startups uh, so that we'll give a chance to have some uh, special meetups for just that group. Um, it's, it's just a terrific program. So excited about that. But meanwhile, let's move on to the Week in Review. To kick off our coverage this week, Editorial Director Heather Clancy took us inside a very interesting event in New York City held by 100 Resilient Cities. Here to give us a quick dispatch on that is Heather Clancy. How's it going, Heather? Hey there, Lauren. Thank you. Um, it's great, and it is beautiful today. <laughs> New York became beautiful while this event was going on. Hugh and I have both reported on the 100 Resilient Cities movement over the last several years. It's an initiative that's funded by the uh, Rockefeller Foundation. It's, it's an offshoot of that. And it was est established to help cities become more, quote, resilient. And in many ways, the, the resilience movement is the urban resilience movement is kind of side, side by side with the climate change and uh, movement, right, in addressing climate change. So one of the things that the, the group has been doing and promising is they've been providing the salaries for, quote, a chief resilience officer, end quote, right? So this is a function within the cities. It's not really part of the government. It's part of the administrative arm. And just four years ago, when, when three years ago, rather, when this movement started, there were only four people with this title, like in, in their network and, and in, around the world. And now within the network itself, there are 79 people, 79 chief resilience officers, including the, the new one in Washington, um, Kevin Bush. So pretty Pretty amazing progress. And, and this is global in scope, right? We're not just talking about big U.S. cities like New York and L.A. Exactly. I mean, all the, the usual suspects in the U.S. are, are within are a part of the movement. But there's, there's uh, Athens and Amman. I mean, there's, there's cities all over the world um, that are a part of this. And, and that makes this uh, especially poignant, but also especially difficult, right? Because every city has a different notion of resilience, and this, this group, they came together to share ideas, um, and there's many things that are very different from, from region to region, city, city, city to city, right? For example, Athens is very focused on ha handling migrant populations and, and how do they do that and how, with their own financial problems, can they support an influx of uh, refugees from other countries? Other places like uh, Santiago are, are dealing with different issues of transportation and, and so forth and how people move into the, into the city from rural communities. But um, one of the things that really is the same is a sort of grassroots movement, the need for city governments to support both formal processes, right? You got you to gotta comply with the, 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 the rules, but also to really do the sort of grassroots informal outreach that many of them may, may not have been doing as, as um, much in the past. The New York mayor, uh, obviously, since it was in his backyard, the New York mayor, Bill de Blasio, uh, addressed the summit. And here's what he had to say about that, the power of informal power. We understand there's no time for complacency, and we can't wait on anyone else to save us. And it's fitting uh, that all of you are gathered here, because I know you share that understanding. And uh, you're depending on us, we're depending on you. This is the power of this gathering cities taking matters into our own hands because we don't have the illusion 
that things will change otherwise. We understand the kind of leadership that we have to provide. So I'm, I'm thrilled everyone is gathering here. Uh, I want to thank Michael Berkowitz. I thought his remarks were very powerful. I want to emphasize something he said, formal and informal power. And, and this is something I have to tell you after three and a half years of mayor of the biggest city in the United States of America, I'm learning all the time, never ignore that informal part of the equation because each and every one of you can change the discussion, not only in your city, but in your region, in your country. And that uh, finds, in my view, a willing audience. More and more people around the world are waking up to the fact that something has to be done. There was uh, a period of time where the issues of climate change were uh, ignored, understated. Obviously, they're still denialists, but I actually think everyday people get it more and more because of their lived experience. But they need champions. They need leaders to step up and say, we're going to go someplace we've never been before in terms of resiliency. And we have the power to do it. Even if it isn't all obvious today, we do have the power and the ingenuity to do it. Your leadership becomes crucial because what I've found of, about mayors, not only in this country, all over the world, is we tend to be bolder. I think it's directly connected to the fact we're closer to the ground. We actually see what people are living through. We, we share their experience. We feel uh, their hardships. We understand their vulnerabilities and, and we speak to them. We are the tribunes. We are the voices of everyday people and everyday people can't wait for these problems to be solved decades down the line. They need them to be solved right now. And so that informal power, that what Theodore Roosevelt once called the bully pulpit, of any mayor anywhere in the world takes on extraordinary value. And I urge everyone to always go a little farther in what you say, push a little harder. This week, California Governor Jerry Brown signed into law a piece of legislation that extended the state's cap-and-trade law from 2020 to 2030. Uh, he did this, but he had to get a two-thirds majority, supermajority, in the legislature, got that with the help of seven or eight or nine Republican votes. This was a really interesting and unique situation given that California is the only state that's done anything like this, let alone with support of the state's Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable and labor and others. And alongside that, our old friend Barbara Grady wrote a great piece called Why Cap and Trade is Still the Main Way to Price Emissions. Yeah, this was really interesting. So it looked at sort of how California as a whole has evolved in the four and a half years that cap and trade has been in place. Obviously, it's been a good time for the economy. GDP has climbed steadily along with population. Greenhouse gas emissions are down overall. There's a really cool chart I would advise everyone to check out that we'll link to in the, the notes for this show. Um, but the upshot here is sort of looking ahead at how the system in California marks a milestone in the, now this is a conversation that's like 25 plus years old about how cap and trade systems could be implemented. Um, first, a concept, as Barbara reports, that sort of emerged during the George H.W. Bush administration. And now this is something that's being talked about, obviously, in Europe, but in, in China is sort of a big place to watch for carbon pricing and cap-and-trade news. So this is just something uh, that we're going to continue to hear about, specifically when it comes to thinking about 
how carbon pricing uh, dovetails with broader economic trajectories in different places. Yeah, and I think something you mentioned I think needs a little elaboration about how we've used this before. So back when acid rain was a major problem in the 1980s, Congress wrote into the 1990 Clean Air Act a cap-and-trade approach for sulfur emissions to curb the sulfur dioxide pollution that was coming from coal-fired power plants and causing acid rain and snow, which was killing aquatic life and forests. And this was all part of a big debate of how do you get use market mechanisms to get uh, industry to, to cut pollution. And, and one of the things that, that happened as you cap the amount of emissions and allow power plants that have done better than the cap to sell some of those allowances to plants that hadn't, that sulfur emissions went down much faster than predicted and at just one-fourth of the projected cost. Uh, And it was regarded highly as one of the great market mechanisms for fighting uh, acid rain and and subsequently for uh, creating carbon markets to fight pollution. Now, there's another school that says carbon taxes are the, are the way to go, and that's been the big debate for those who are looking for ways to uh, legislate changes uh, to greenhouse gas emissions. So the way cap-and-trade works is that regulators, again, set up emissions cap on large emitters like manufacturers and utilities, but they leave it up to them to figure out how they meet that cap or they buy allowances that allow them to emit more than the cap. The efficient companies that reduce emissions below the caps can sell their allowances and so on. And this is now part and parcel of California's policy mechanism. And the money that comes from that, from buying the emissions, some of that is going into green projects like clean tech investments, uh, both venture and other investments. And so it's just seen as a market mechanism that isn't being tried elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of the sort of forward-looking prospects in California, another point that Barbara raises is that the state has continued to far and away attract the most clean tech investment of any U.S. state. In 2015, California clean tech companies received 68% of total U.S. clean tech investment. That's both venture capital and other investment which totaled uh, $9.8 billion worth of the year's total, $14.5 billion in clean tech investment. Um, that's according to Nexten, a group that puts together the annual California Green Innovation Index. So definitely something to keep an eye on in terms of innovation that sort of is propelled in some ways by this policy framework. And I have to say that the conservative re- uh, political movement hates this, uh, the conservative political movement that's looking for you know, market mechanisms and not picking winners and and gov- over-regulation. They, the, the Wall Street Journal has run at least a half a dozen um, pieces about California's uh, cap-and-trade. These are op-ed pieces, opinion pieces, lambasting the state and calling it a giveaway to the green lobby or whatever. And and yet this is proven effective and it's given a lot of flexibility to industry. And as we said before, California industry seems to like it or at least is voting in favor of it, supporting it as the least harmful mechanism to use to take on climate change. So will this ever become a national conversation? Well, not anytime soon, but it certainly has the potential to become the kind of policy solution that we've long been waiting for. So when you think about another concept that has evolved over time, Joel, you had a piece this week 
called Biomimicry at 20, a conversation with Janine Benyus. What was that about? Well, we teased a little bit uh, on last week's episode of, of 350. Janine Benyus wrote a book called Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature, came out exactly 20 years ago, 1997, about uh, using nature's 3.8 billion years of research and development on how to make closed-loop, solar-powered, waste-free, regenerative kinds of systems, and how we can apply that to the design of our building cities, products, and other things. And so I've known Janine for most of those 20 years, and um, we had a conversation, about an hour-long conversation a few weeks ago, that turned into the Q&A that we ran this week, and how this has become the domain of Companies like Colgate, Paul Mall of GE, General Mills, Herman Miller, IDEO, Interface, Levi's, Nike, Procter Gamble. And I want to play a little clip from that conversation, uh, which, as I mentioned last week, took place while I was sitting in my office, but she was taking a hike in Montana. So you'll hear some of her footsteps in the background. And uh, I asked Janine about the circular economy and how the notion of a circular economy played into the notion of bio-inspired design or biomimicry. And here's what she had to say. So circular economy, if you go back to the original document, the McKinsey document, there were two fundamental pieces of work in the world that they based circular economy on, one of which was biomimicry. they, They knew that, obviously, life knows how to do circular design, and then it's cradle to cradle. And that whole methodology, those were the two things so it, it's fundamental to, to the way of thinking. So I'm excited about circular economy. I think, I think they're doing a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant job of taking a lot of these memes that we've talked about, putting them in a you know, very hardcore business metrics with McKinsey's help, and great design, right? Great visual design, and I think they're doing all the, all the right things. And, and we're talking to them about creating maps of how do nutrients flow in the natural world and why is there no leakage, virtually no leakage of, of valuable nutrients? And how does that work? And how many trophic levels do you need? You know, we're starting to think about how do we map that as if you would map, you know, a workflow or, or an engineering process diagram. But also, my God, the amount of innovation that needs to happen around putting things together molecularly and physically and mechanically in ways that can be easily taken apart and reused. How do you do Chemistry, chemical reactions in which the byproduct is actually something of great value to the next chemical reaction, right? How do you, how do, you do that? I mean, so the innovation play for biomimicry is very big there. If we understand that as we try to move from a linear throughput mechanical kind of metaphor to a living systems one to a circular one, we actually have the chemistries and the best practices at our fingertips. So, and, and they know that. So I think biomimicry is playing very well there. There's an appetite developing, in other words. There's also an appetite developing in the, in the field of, of net positive. I think a lot of people are grappling right now with what does that mean? And I just went to, to the Shrine Conference at Harvard and they were mostly, primarily, almost exclusively talking about product. How do we do net positive products? And what I said there was that companies touch a lot of land and they can heal every single place they touch. And what I mean by that is that 
um, and this is our work in the built world that I've talked to you about, which is this idea of nature as, as the measure, having your community, your building and its site, your city, whatever scale, having that held to ecological performance standards and saying that we're going to measure the success of this community by how much water it cleans, how much air it filters, how much water it stores, how much carbon it stores, the same level of ecosystem service as a healthy wildland next door. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. Lauren, you wrote a piece uh, this week that looked at a topic we've been tracking for a number of years now, stranded assets or how the potential for multi-billion dollar or even trillion dollar financial write-downs companies may be facing if they're holding on to assets that some, somehow become less valuable or economically untenable in a, in a climate-constrained world. Things like coal in the ground or oil that needs to be left in the ground that's currently on companies' books. So explain a little bit about what you looked at in this piece. That's right. So stranded assets is a financial or accounting term that we've been hearing more about in the context of not only climate change as a physical risk to the planet and what that means for fossil fuels that you have to burn to extract value from, but also how companies could be forced to write down assets that become unviable with policy shifts. Obviously, we were just talking about the sort of global carbon pricing picture, and that could really change the math when it comes to carbon-intensive commodities. Um, So basically, that massive coal reserve that your company has been sitting on could become a lot less appealing if you truly factor in environmental costs, uh, potentially leading companies to write it off on their balance sheet to the tune of, like you said, billions or potentially trillions of dollars. Okay, so that's the big idea, but your piece looked specifically at the mining industry. Um, Why don't you drill down into that a little bit? Yeah, so this story came out of a new report by our friends the Climate Data and Advocacy Group, CDP, which ranked 12 of the world's biggest diversified mining companies, so companies that are working in coal, oil, and gas, all the way into much more specific materials like copper and cobalt that are used for all kinds of products across industries, lots of consumer things that we know and love, like cell phones and automobiles and all that. But the The criteria here was ranking businesses on, quote unquote, readiness for a low carbon economy transition. And it's really a pretty mixed picture when it comes to mining companies. You've got some of the big names like Brazil's Bale, Australia's BHP or Rio Tinto. But the big headline is that collectively not enough is being done to factor in how the mining supply chain contributes to carbon emissions. So talk a little bit more about that. Uh, A lot of companies are looking at their supply chains and really digging into them, uh, you know, Apple to Cargill. And if you go too far into any of these, you eventually hit metal, the companies that need steel, tin, aluminum, or any number of other metals for their supply chain. So what's going on there? Exactly. That's the dynamic that I was really interested in with this report. And the, the big takeaway from this CDP report is an estimate they came out with that mining supply chains contain up to $16 billion dollars in hidden emissions costs when you actually factor in how raw materials are processed. So in terms of what that actually means, you can look at something like the steel supply chain, which starts with 
a unit of iron ore that's mined in China, Australia, Brazil, wherever it may be. And then that raw material is then sold to a steel maker and processed in a very energy intensive process. So you get this multiplier effect where the steel maker using that raw iron ore then generates multiples in terms of carbon emission. Um, in terms of what Tarek Solomon from CDP, one of the report authors, said, he called it a big balloon of emissions that happen elsewhere in the economy from mining companies after they supply the raw materials. So what should companies be watching when it comes to how mining companies, particularly those working in areas that are subject to climate constraints like coal or oil, uh, how, how they're preparing for a low-carbon world? That was definitely the most interesting part of the story for me. I did put that question to CDP's Tarek Solomon, and he said that in addition to macro-level trends like the circular economy that are starting to change the way materials are used, there's also this interesting trend toward mining companies investing more heavily in materials that are essential to low-carbon infrastructure, so things like solar panels and clean energy infrastructure, but also electric vehicle charging necessities uh, in a few different categories like that. So here's more on that idea from Solomon. What we see in our report is two broad groups of commodities, some of the ones that are going to be needed in a low-carbon economy in greater volumes, things like uh, copper, nickel, cobalt as the world electrifies and needs um, some batteries for energy storage, and those which are potentially going to be uh, displaced in in their demand levels like fossil fuels. Um, What we've looked at is how companies are committing their capital to those two groups of commodities. Um, We found just under half is going to the greener side of the spectrum, uh, but a quarter is still going to fossil fuel development. And that varies across certain companies um, to varying um, degrees. But we see a, a general trend in companies starting to shift their capital, which will then dictate what companies uh, look like in sort of five years' time once some of these projects start producing and start becoming functioning assets. It'll start to dictate what kind of uh, companies they'll look like and positioned um, uh, against the backdrop of a, a low-carbon economy. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories and other things that we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks to our podcast director, Stephanie Joyce. And this week, we welcome back three-time mom and Green Biz Managing Editor, Elsa Wenzel. Great to have you around again, Elsa. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always like your comments and feedback. And we'll be back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.